Hello and welcome to this edition of Cato Connects. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute. As police and protesters continue to clash in Ferguson, Missouri, the public is rightly asking questions now about the police response at nearly every stage. The police killing of teenager Michael Brown and the military-style response by local police has a lot of people talking about militarization of local police, and uh, it's now on the front burner of American politics. So to talk about that and related issues, I'm joined by Tim Lynch. He's the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, and uh, where he is a leading voice in support of the Bill of Rights and Civil Liberties. Of course, he's also uh, one of the forces behind the National Police Misconduct Reporting Project. That's policemisconduct.net. And it aggregates news stories from around the country. If you have any questions, you can tweet them to uh, our discussion here taking place now at C.O. Brown and Cato Ferguson is the is the hashtag. So we already have a couple of questions, Tim, if you don't mind. I'd like to go ahead and get started. Sure. So uh, Graciela Narunda asks, was sending in the National Guard a necessary action to recover peace or an act of desperation which escalated tensions? To me, it, it looked like another act of political desperation. Now, obviously, it was a mess down in Ferguson, and I think we've got all the officials down there scrambling around, trying to make themselves look good, trying to improve the situation. But a lot of finger pointing, obviously, between the police chiefs, highway patrol, the governor, the attorney general. Um, so to me, things were bad, and uh, the governor was looking weak. He was being criticized in the press. So it looked like an act of uh, desperation to me. Reporters kept calling me and asking me, what do you think of this? You know, what do you think the impact of the National Guard is going to be? And I said, it's really impossible to tell because we didn't know at the time they were calling me anyway, you know, what their role was going to be. We didn't know how many troops were going to show up. We didn't know how they were going to be deployed. We didn't know what the chain of command was going to be, whether they were going to be reporting to uh, the police or whether the police were now going to be reporting to the National Guard. So it, it was quite the mess. All right. So uh, we have another question here. This is from Jim Bavard, at Jim Bavard on Twitter. Uh, Tim, have you heard any reports of the feds pressuring local and state officials to delay disclosing info on the shooting? I have not heard any information uh, about that. Uh, Jim Bovard, by the way, had a great article just the other day in USA Today when Eric Holder, our attorney general, was going to Ferguson. Uh, and, you know, so often the narrative is that the federal officials come riding to the rescue to kind of solve problems at the local level. And Jim Bovard had an excellent article in the USA Today reminding people that he was U.S. attorney here in the District of Columbia for a number of years. And we had a lot of controversial shootings right here in the district. And did Eric Holder, what was his record with respect to overseeing accountability for those shootings? And it was a very poor record indeed. And Jim laid that out very well. And we linked to his article on our police misconduct website. Now, um, a lot of details about the, the shooting that set off all of this uh, are still unknown and won't be known for some time, but probably won't have any indictments, if any, are forthcoming uh, until maybe September and October. But uh, what we know about the police response, uh, well, what can you say about it broadly? Well, first on the shooting, uh, let's talk about that for just a moment because I think what's important here is that the – we should like – 
address this kind of in chronological order because first we had the shooting and then the community started to turn out in protest and that's why the media descended on Ferguson was because people were protesting. And then the media started to shine a light on the Ferguson Police Department and then things started to spiral downward from there. But let's go back to the shooting a little bit and why the community uh, turned out in protest. And I think the important point that needs to be made here is that if somebody like Governor Rick Perry, if he had a son that was unarmed and was shot down six times in the street by the Texas Rangers, we could be sure that there would be a vigorous investigation into the circumstances of that shooting. But when it involves somebody like an African-American or somebody who has no political connections, sometimes these acts of brutality, uh, allegations of police misconduct, they kind of are not taken very seriously and there's not an investigation. And so when somebody is actually shot and killed, uh, that's when I think things began to boil over in Ferguson because behind every shooting, questionable shooting I should say, there are maybe dozens, hundreds of acts of police misconduct or brutality that were not investigated. But when somebody is actually killed, that's when I think things boiled over. And what people are want obviously we don't know the merits of of the case yet. It's either an act of self-defense or or an act of manslaughter or murder. We don't know. A jury will probably have to sort this out over time. But what the people were protesting is that, you know, his body was left in the street for several hours. Um, and I think they were demanding that there be an impartial invest investigation into the circumstances of the shooting. And that's why they turned out to protest. That's when the media descended on Ferguson to cover those protests. And then we got the – now we get to the police response to the protests, which was, of course, that very militaristic, confrontational and adversarial approach, which then put things right on the wrong track as far as like setting up this adversarial uh, situation between the police department and the members of the community that were coming out to protest. All right. We have a question from uh, Leandra B. She asks, thoughts on international pressure on U.S. related to civil rights? Should the international community have a place? No, I don't see any role for uh, international pressure uh, in these circumstances. And in fact, uh, we don't even want, uh, uh, like Jim Bovard was asking earlier about the federal role, we really want to uh, try to keep the federal government out of this as well. It is useful uh, probably you know, to have the FBI coming in and like overseeing things, but we want the, the federal government to kind of come in as a, as a last resort. This is something that the local authorities should be handled. Um, I think they, they should have identified the police officer right away. I think the governor has made a mistake in not appointing a special prosecutor to investigate this shooting. Uh, the local uh, prosecutor, uh, there seems to be good reasons not to have much confidence in the, in the work that he's doing at the uh, – the only good thing is that uh, it's got so much national attention now, uh, so the pressure is on. But I would prefer to have seen the governor appoint a special prosecutor in this case and keep the 
Justice Department and President Obama and his administration out of this uh, matter. Is it too late to appoint a special prosecutor? It's not too late, but it would have been better had it been done early on. Okay. Uh, and that brings me to a question. Uh, use of force reports filed by police. There are there seems to be a fairly high standard for even filing those reports in many police departments. That's right. Um, one of the reasons that we started the uh, National Police Misconduct Reporting Project at Cato was to try to get more attention on police misconduct in the, in the United States because no one else is really tracking this stuff. And when policing in the United States is very decentralized, we have close to uh, 18,000 police departments in the United States and their records as far as like reporting shootings, reporting acts of brutality like you were talking about, there's varying standards and it's hard to get a good measurement um, on police misconduct in this country and that's why we started the project in order to draw more attention to the problem and also to try to develop some measuring sticks so that we could tell whether the problem is getting better or getting worse. This is a question from Mike R. Uh, on Twitter, This I Defend. He says, when was the last time Mr. Obama made a comment about or Mr. Holder went to Chicago concerning the murder rate there? Right. Well, the last time I heard President Obama talk about uh, violent crime in Chicago was back in the aftermath of the uh, Newtown shooting and in his efforts to impose more gun controls. Now, I may be wrong. I don't uh, – go to the White House website every day to see the things that he is saying. But that's the last time I have heard him talk about a violence in the, in the streets of Chicago. But, you know, I think that's relevant if you want to have a broader discussion. But I think the focus of the past two weeks has been on police misconduct. And I think that's it's fair to separate the two issues. Uh, I think your point is a valid criticism perhaps of President Obama and the Reverend Al Sharpton who uh, don't seem to pay enough attention to black-on-black -black violence. But it's perfectly fine to have a separate conversation about police misconduct, the extent to which it's happening, and what ought to be done about it. All right. This is from uh, Reason Magazine. This is one of the sort of inspirations that has been taken from uh, protests in Ferguson, Missouri. In Texas, blacks are protesting police violence in a particularly southwestern way by invoking their right to open carry. On Wednesday, more than 30 members of the newly formed Huey P. Newton Gun Club gathered to march through the South Dallas with rifles, shotguns, and AR-15s. The group eventually entered a restaurant with their weapons while Dallas police officers were inside uh, eating lunch. Now, um, well, what do you make of that? Well, this is the first time I'm, I'm hearing about the protests. It sounds it sounds kind of interesting. I hope the uh, the Dallas Police Department uh, has uh, you know exercised their restraint and is respecting their right to protest and their right to carry arms. All right. Um, this is from Bernard Carrick. He is, uh, as you know, the former police commissioner in New York. He said it's absolutely needed, referring to. Uh, this type of weaponry, this militarized weaponry. The police can't be afraid to do their job, shouldn't be afraid to do their job. When the thugs try to take over the community, the police have to act and do whatever they have to keep the peace. That was on uh, CNN's State of the Union. So I, this is the Bernard Carrick who's just been released from prison? The, the one and the same. 
Okay. Well, I don't know why he's being given a platform on CNN to expound on what he thinks is uh, appropriate policing, but uh, uh, I don't think it should be given all that much weight. Okay. But there is, I think, a natural inclination uh, among a lot of people who are perhaps law and order Republican types who say, look, this is this is about uh, – we're concerned about property damage, uh, an overwhelming show of force uh, may be appropriate. I mean it's almost pageantry in a, in a way that uh, this massive police response with militarized weapons occurred. Right. Well, obviously uh, uh, the people who are causing the property damage down there are breaking laws and they are subject to arrest and uh, – I hope many of them were apprehended and punished. But I think what we're talking about is the broader trend of local police departments acquiring military weapons. Uh, the images coming out of Ferguson were really shocking, like a sniper setting up on top of an armored vehicle. That's an image I won't soon forget. Um, shooting tear gas uh, at uh, protesters actually going into the backyards of people's homes and uh, there was that police officer just the other day who uh, pointed his gun at people who were not presenting any threat whatsoever. I was glad to see that he was relieved of duty. That's what people are looking for is that when officers step out of line and do stuff like that, that the higher-ups act to discipline them. And uh, that's, that's what I think people want to see more of. All right. Patrick Hannaford asks a question here. Is militarization of police a problem unique to the U.S., excluding dictatorships, or has it occurred in other Western democracies? I don't – I haven't seen the problem discussed with respect to other Western democracies. And uh, just to back up a second, the, what we're talking about is several trends that are underway at the same time. We're talking about local police departments acquiring military weaponry from the Pentagon. Now, we're talking about M-16s, grenade launchers, armored personnel carriers, and camouflage uniforms, which nobody can seem to think of what, how that helps the police in an American city or suburban environment. So the paramilitary units have been created. They're not just in the big cities anymore. They've spread to small towns. The second thing that has happened is uh, the missions for which they are called out. The initial rationale was that we'd have these units for special extraordinary situations that were beyond the, the ability of the ordinary patrolman like a hostage situation. They've spread way beyond that into more routine policing activity. So you put these two things together, uh, hundreds of these paramilitary units across the country and then they're not being limited – to extraordinary situations, but they're into routine policing activity. And then you can see what we're talking about, what that adds up to. It means paramilitary tactics have taken hold in American policing around the country. And we're talking about violent uh, no-knock raids on people's homes, that these things happen uh, tens of thousands of times a year. And another website we have or web page, I should say, on uh, the Cato website is something we call the raid map, where people can get a better idea as to how often these raids happen. Because sometimes when the police go into, say, the wrong home and somebody is shot and killed, that raid will get some attention and people will say, my gosh, I didn't know 
uh, we had a SWAT team in our community uh, and they think it's a tragic uh, incident but something that's fairly rare and what we've tried to do is bring all these raids together onto our raid map to demonstrate to people that these things are happening much more frequently than the average person realizes. A question from Matthew Christ. He says, I agree the federal government should stay out, but the federal government could mandate body cameras nationally. What do you think about that? Um, I don't like that idea. Um, I like the idea of body cameras and I was talking to a reporter about this the other day. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like this reflexive thing about federal government has to do something. OK, we stop sending them M16s. Let's start sending them body cameras. And I'm like, no, can we just get them to stop? Stop, stop doing what you're doing. You don't, uh, you know, focus on re repealing laws and canceling spending and getting the federal government back under into its proper constitutional sphere. I do like the idea of body cameras, but this is something that the governors and the state legislatures should be addressing. We don't need more congressmen coming out of the woodwork with ideas to impose on our local police departments. I think that would be a bad precedent. All right. Uh, a comment here more than a question. Don't forget asset forfeiture when talking about police militarization in Ferguson. What is there a relationship, the clear relationship there? There is a relationship. Well, again, for, for, for viewers who are not familiar, civil asset forfeiture are special laws that allow the police department to seize people's property, cash, land, homes uh, without having to convict them of a crime. And often uh, the local police departments are able to keep the property that they seize. So it creates an awful incentive for them uh, to go out and grab people's property because they get to keep it themselves. And uh, the connection between civil asset forfeiture and the militarization is sometimes these military equipment is expensive to maintain. So if they go out and seize people's property, they can increase the budget of their local police department so that they can maintain and maybe even purchase more military equipment through the use of civil asset forfeiture. So there is a connection and and uh, we've been addressing uh, the problem of civil asset forfeiture with other Cato studies as well. Uh, to what extent have police agencies – and I know Radley Balco, uh, former Catoite, now with the Washington Post who wrote Rise of the Warrior Cop recently, uh, presciently I think. Uh, to what extent are local police agencies using these sort of highly aggressive tactics to serve regular warrants? Yeah, it's becoming all too common, uh, these no-knock raids on people's houses. Um, sometimes you see the footage on television where a police unit will rush up to somebody's home. It's one knock on the door and a few seconds later, they use a battering ram to smash down the front door. They also are throwing flashbang grenades into the windows uh, during these raids and sometimes there's tragic consequences. A few weeks ago, uh, near Atlanta, uh, one of these flashbang grenades fell into the crib of a toddler who is now in a coma uh, because of, of these raids. Um, the other point that I think needs to be made is that we used to refer to police officers as, as peace officers in this country. But with this paramilitarism, we're getting the opposite effect because these units will roll into a neighborhood during the night, very early in the morning. And they will conduct these violent uh, entries into people's homes, again, with the flashbang grenades. And when you're forcing your way into somebody's homes during these hours, 
it creates disorder. It creates uh, a violent situation because the homeowners think, my gosh, we're about to be attacked by criminals and sometimes these people will get their their guns for self-defense and there will be a shootout between the police and the homeowners. So instead of uh, disorder and the police responding to restore the peace, we have p- police units rolling into neighborhoods and creating the violent situations. Uh, another uh, comment, more than a question, from uh, Mike R. He says he has no problem with this equipment being used by law enforcement officers as long as they're trained and it is used as a last option. Right. Well, you know, there are about, as I mentioned earlier, about 17,000 police departments in the United States, and I think it falls along a spectrum. We do have some departments at one end of the spectrum where their teams do a lot of training. They're very professional and they're maybe only called out uh, in certain limited situations like a hostage situation. But we all know that there are all too many police departments on other points on that spectrum where uh, they're not, they don't have the training, uh, they're given this equipment, and uh, they, they bring it into routine policing activities where these uh, tactics are horribly abused and there's tragedies that result, and there's only oversight when there's really a death and then a lawsuit is brought against a municipality, and then members of the city council start asking questions that should have been asked initially, like, does this community, which hasn't had a murder in 10 years, do we need an armored personnel carrier and uh, members of the police with M16s carrying out these nighttime raids? Uh, a question here from Angela C. Erickson. She says, what is the role of the National Guard when local agencies are militarized and effectively taking the role of the National Guard? I mean, it's, it seems like a National Guard, if you treat that as a last resort, you would want them to have the most impressive uh, set of weapons. That's right. And it's a good question. And the, I'm afraid the answer is that the lines between all of these units are becoming badly blurred. Um, the National Guard uh, traditionally is called into a, a domestic situation when all of the, the civil processes and agencies broke or break down, like like in the Katrina-type situation where the, the, the jails are, have been flooded. There's no place to do the normal processing of police work or in an earthquake-type situation where, where there is looting. Uh, that's getting rampant or the risk of it getting rampant. That's where you want to call in the National Guard, especially for the manpower that they can they can bring in quickly for a situation. But when the police departments are dressing up in camouflage, helmets, M16s, uh, these armored personnel carriers, the lines between the police and the National Guard and our active duty military, these lines are, are getting badly blurred. Well, what is the role of the National Guard then in these kinds of situations? I mean, it, it seems like it should be the last resort when local police have been overwhelmed by some sort of uh, mass event, but that certainly wasn't what we were looking at, at least initially in Ferguson. Yeah, I think that's right. They, they, the National Guard should be used as a last resort. I think they're most helpful because of the manpower that they can uh, – bring to a situation. But you would hope uh, that the civilian authorities uh, would maintain control so that the chain of command would be the National Guard would respond in a way that the police think would be helpful to them rather than to have those roles reversed. You would want, let's say, if a National Guard guardman had to make an arrest, that that person would be quickly turned over to the police as soon as possible 
because the police are supposed to be trained in respecting people's constitutional rights and that is something that the military is 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 not equipped to do. That's one reason why we're concerned about this trend and when we hear about SWAT teams being trained by members of our special forces, this is very disturbing because um, our members of our military, I mean, in essence, their mission is we send them to war to go kill the enemy. Uh, they're not thinking about constitutional rights on the other side of a battlefield. So these people should not be cross-training with members of our civilian police departments. We want the police to use the to avoid the use of force and then to use the absolute minimum amount of force that may be necessary in some situations to bring a suspect into a court of law. Uh, another comment here, it's hard to standardize use of force, but it's clear that M-16s and military tactics should not be used on unarmed civilians. Yes, obviously. And unfortunately, we did see these snipers set up in Ferguson and point their weapons at the protesters. And uh, we've even seen members of the military say that they were shocked by what they were seeing in an American city because they used even greater restraint when they were uh, in cities in war zones like Afghanistan and, and Iraq. All right. This is a uh, this is photojournalist Scott Olson. He was uh, re reporting for Getty in Ferguson. Uh, he was arrested across the street from what was uh, designated as a press area after his release. He said, I want to be able to do my job as a member of the media and not be arrested for just doing my job. And uh, some of the, the comments that we've seen, there are, were uh, – maybe that's not the case now, but there were no news helicopters over uh, Ferguson for a while. Many reporters arrested and more broadly just the right of people to – uh, assemble uh, seem to have been uh, violated. Yeah, that's right. There were very uh, there were a lot of disturbing reports that came out uh, in those initial days. And you know, at first the incidents there were the the news media was beginning to treat uh, the storyline as police mistreatment of minorities, and I didn't think that was exactly right. And that's why I was really well when the Reporters on the scene down there started to be mistreated by the police department and those reporters were able to then to relay through the use of Twitter and other aspects of social media how the police were treating them. That I thought was kind of a turning point because then it got the issue back to the police abuse of power, uh, illegal uh, actions by the police and I think that is the way in which this – this story should be framed. That's that's the issue: is is the police abuse of power? Now, do minorities bear the brunt of a lot of this? Absolutely. But there's uh, we see police misconduct not only against minorities but uh, against uh, white people and everybody else in the community. And that's what we document at policemisconduct.net. Stories like this over and over again from around the country. Uh, another question. Uh, assuming we can end all federal programs militarizing police, and I, I do want you to get into both of those, the, both the Pentagon and DHS programs, how do we deal with already militarized police agencies? Right. Well, the first step is to stop the flow of weaponry from the Pentagon to uh, the civilian police uh, agencies from around the country. There have been a couple of bills that have been introduced in the Congress and 
before we get back to the uh, civilian police agencies, we also have to talk a little bit about uh, the federal regulatory agencies. I mean, people will not be surprised to learn that the FBI has SWAT teams, and, and they should. So should the Secret Service. But people will be shocked to learn that the Food and Drug Administration has SWAT teams. Uh, Bureau of Land Management has SWAT teams. So we've been seeing this proliferation of paramilitary units also among the federal regulatory agencies. That needs to stop. But getting back to the civilian police units, the first order of business is to stop the flow of weaponry and equipment that hasn't gone out the door yet. We need to shut that off. Then we need to deal with the problem of uh, the departments that have already acquired this stuff. And it's going to take some leadership on the part of governors and mayors to re-examine. I I suspect a lot of them, before all of this heavy news coverage, uh, may not even be aware of what their police departments have because the departments contact the Pentagon directly. And when they're giving – the Pentagon is giving the stuff away for free – um, they didn't have to ask for permission from the office of the governor or the mayor. And some of these city councils only become aware of what their police have acquired and what they're doing in the wake of a tragedy. And when a lawsuit is filed against their, their city or town, that's when they start asking the questions. Uh, a question from Todd Kiefer. Is militarization Obama's promised just as powerful, just as strong, just as well-funded civilian force? I'm not sure I understand that one. I don't either. But there is this distinction that I think people sort of fail to make when they're taught when we're talking about police is they use the word civilian to refer to people who are not police. But of course police in America are civilians. That's right. That's a very important point that that needs to be made and we need to remind people of that. The the police do not are, don't really have special powers and they're not supposed to be exempt from our laws. They're supposed to be like a representative of the community that uh, is is acting on our behalf but their powers are very much aligned with what powers or rights you and I have. They have the right to defend themselves. They have the right to defend others. I have the right to defend myself and I could defend your life if someone were to, to threaten it. Um, that's why – it goes – that's why the Michael Brown shooting is – raises very basic questions because the the laws against theft, uh, assault and battery uh, uh, and murder, these laws apply to our police departments. Uh, this is what makes America different from authoritarian regimes from around the country. The police here cannot do whatever they want to and if they overstep their bounds, they are subject to prosecution. The key, though, is that these laws do not enforce themselves. You have to have a prosecutor and a police chief who is willing to apply these laws to officers who step out of line, and that's sometimes where the system breaks down. Uh, This is just a shot of some of the tactical gear that a lot of uh, local police have been using in uh, Ferguson. In terms of just the uh, relationship between police and everybody else, that you know cuts a pretty mean profile in terms of of what these people uh, look like in terms of their integration into a community. Yeah, the images are shocking. Um, again, they kind of look uh, they don't look like police officers to us. They they look like soldiers that are getting ready for battle. Um, that's why it was. 
so shocking, and uh, that's what made the a bad situation worse uh, in, in that community. Uh, uh, made a bad situation worse, and I think the police response in Ferguson is going to be studied in police academies, not only here in this country, but probably in other, many other countries from around the world as they discuss what are good police tactics and what are bad police tactics. Uh, this is something that uh, Walter Olson here, who has been uh, also doing a lot of uh, writing on this subject as well, he said that fines and court fees – this is from uh, Newsweek – fines and court fees constitute the second largest source of funding for Ferguson's government. Is that a large share? I don't know. It sounds sounds very large to me, but I don't know. Uh, I can't compare it to, let's say, other towns in Missouri. It sounds shockingly high to me. The other point that he found uh, out was that there's a shocking number of arrests per household uh, in that community, which is also very disturbing. Um, and there's been some interesting work lately in academia about how and by reason analysts and, and by Walter about how uh, people kind of get caught up in our criminal justice system with having to pay probation fees and they, they, they become subject to arrest because they can't keep up with payments and people are beginning to talk about like the return of debtors' prisons because poor people sometimes get caught up in these traps. I know from my own work on plea bargaining that sometimes when poor people are arrested, they're given the option of – what the authorities tell them is that, look, if you plead guilty, you can go home today uh, rather than stay in jail and then for their trial perhaps months later. So people opt to plead guilty. They get out of uh, jail that day. But what they don't really realize is that they've signed on to a probation system that will require the payment of fees. And when they're not able to keep up with these fees, uh, they find themselves uh, on a treadmill where they cannot keep up, where they're constantly subject to arrest because they're failing to maintain payments and that sort of thing. All right. Before we uh, end here today, tell people what they will find at uh, policemisconduct.net, the National Police Misconduct Reporting Project. What we're trying to do with this website is uh, gather news stories from around the country uh, involving instances of police misconduct. Now, sometimes people ask us, like, police misconduct, isn't that a no-brainer? Isn't everybody already against misconduct? That's a fair question, but uh, not everybody agrees with what constitutes police misconduct. People do disagree about the extent of police misconduct in the United States, and then not everybody agrees what ought to be done about police misconduct. So we try to draw more attention to the subject uh, with our website and then direct people to Cato Scholarship on this subject about ways in which um, we can minimize police misconduct uh, in our communities. All right. Uh, thank you, Tim, very much for uh, talking with me today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your questions. Uh, if you have any additional comments, you can email them to me, tweet them at me, and uh, offer any thoughts you have on, on this program and how we should uh, make any adjustments going forward. We'll talk to you again next time. 